You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. We are opening 2023 with a lot of hope on the horizon for ovarian cancer. And here to tell us more about it, no no one other than Dr. Rob Coleman. (laughs) So Dr. Coleman, as you know, is the uh, Chief Science Officer at US Oncology and Overcomes Advisory Board member. And of course, one of the uh, top global experts in the field of ovarian cancer. Regarded as a giant in this field, we think Dr. Coleman's passion for our overcomers is absolutely unmatched. So we have a lot to chat with him today as we, as I said, as we open 2023 with hope on the horizon for ovarian cancer. So um, grab your favorite beverage or coffee. I have mine and let's connect over coffee with Dr. Coleman. And if you have any questions as we go along, uh, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion. And as I always say, please share this video far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all these pearls of wisdom and insights Dr. Coleman is about to share with us today. So with that, a huge welcome to you. Welcome back to you, Dr. Coleman, to this opening episode of uh, Connect Over Coffee for 2023. Such an honor to have you back with us. Well, it's always it's always a pleasure to be with you. Oh my gosh. And thanks for doing this and having the venue to be able to reach so many people. We're so excited. This is a it's been a great time, and um, I really appreciate your efforts in in spreading the the, the word. Thank you. So, um, as I said, we are excited about this about this year and what it has to offer for ovarian cancer patients and survivors. But before that, uh, tell us about you know the three most exciting advances according to you that happened in 2022, and what should our overcomers know about their promises in advancing treatment for ovarian cancer? Yeah, so I think um, uh, there's been a number of um, high-profile events that have happened in in 2022. Uh, probably the the two biggest ones uh, were the re- the readout of the Athena trial, which was looking at another PARP inhibitor in primary uh, ovarian cancer management. Not a not a new story, but a new agent. And and of course, this is important because this specific trial is actually one that is going to be also looking at the addition of immunotherapy to a PARP inhibitor uh, in, a, uh, in a prospective way. And these trials uh, now, this trial adds to the three others that we are expecting to hear about very shortly that are looking at this kind of a strategy for frontline um, uh, treatment. So that's a, um, that's a, was a very important um, uh, report that came out of ASCO last year and, um, you know, provided, um, I think uh, a platform for new new drug development, and obviously one we're going to capitalize on very very quickly. The second one, I think uh, most people were uh, anticipating very much so, was the re- readout of the Sorea trial. Um, the Sorea trial was uh, looking at mervatuximab uh, soreptancine, which is a antibody drug conjugate, and this um, particular antibody drug conjugate, you know, targets folate receptor alpha to bring chemotherapy directly to the tumor sites. And we had heard about this drug for some time. I think we actually reviewed it on one of our conversations over coffee um, in the past when we had, uh, we had were disappointed with its initial phase three results. And we learned from that study that maybe we were we were selecting patients and uh, not as as precisely as we should have. So we rewrote that program uh, with two studies, uh, the phase three of Sorea, which I was fortunate to, to co-lead with my good friend, Ursula Matalonis, many of you may also know. And uh, and that paper should be coming out any day. Um, it was accepted at, G- at the Journal of Clinical Ecology. Um, and uh, it demonstrated you know, single agent efficacy in, in rates that actually kind of exceeded our expectations. And so we're very hopeful um, that the accelerated approval that was granted by the FDA at the end of last year um, will turn into a regular approval so that this drug will be, you know, on our um, uh, available therapy for, uh, for our, our patients. So that was, a, um, again, another, another win, a uh, big win for us as it adds, you know, to a, a fairly limited kind of 
you know, portfolio of newly active drugs. The third thing I think was, um, which is something I want to say is a advance in 2022 was the um, really the explosion of clinical trial opportunities. So um, we uh, have seen unprecedented growth in opportunity for patients uh, through the clinical trials uh, opportunity. Um, and this includes not just uh, high-grade serous, which we've always focused on, but also for rare tumors, uh, particularly those that like clear cell, which I know many of the, your listeners um, uh, and I have answered many questions about clear cell and low-grade. And of course, we've, we've had Dr. David Gershenson on here, who's a strong advocate, and Jubilee Brown. Um, who, who, because we've now launched trials that are specifically focused in these rare subgroups. And we have one trial that is, um, that is moving very quickly through that's looking at novel strategy for, um, for a treatment for, uh, for low-grade serous. We opened up a trial platform trial called Bouquet, which is adding new arms every single time that we finish it, close an arm. So that now this will be now nine different arms that are going to be evaluated in that trial. So again, opportunity for rarer tumors, low-grade serous, clear cell, um, mucinous tumors, uh, endometrioid um, uh, tumors. So we have this new opportunity for uh, a wider catchment of, 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 of new agents coming into a treatment domain that are based on biomarkers. So, um, you know, Enhancement of the PARP frontline strategy, new air therapy for platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, uh, which is, of course, is, is developing, and then also this opportunity for rare tumors and new, op new, new drugs for, uh, for those uh, patients. Wonderful. Thank you for that fabulous information. So um, moving on to 2023, then, for someone that gets diagnosed this year in 2023, mm -hmm. are there any practice-changing directions in treatment that has taken place that we need to be aware of and, you know, what, what has or is in the process of changing when it comes to, you know, diagnosis and just change in practice. Generally. Yeah, I think that, you know, so if you look at the spectrum of for patients with ovarian cancer, we have, you know, prevention or, and early detection, which is a, which is a, has been a, um, uh, a very difficult arena to break, you know, break into. But the good news there is that, um, we're not seeing people abandon that strategy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously when patients um, are usually listening here, they've already been diagnosed. And so what we're, what we're trying to do is to figure out a way to take the general population if, and identify a way to, um, to more efficiently screen for patients that might be at risk. And of course, the identification of BRCA mutation, as we know in the germline, is one of those strategies. But that's a small fraction of the patient population of women who ultimately did get the disease. So um, uh, from, from patients that already have pelvic masses that may or may not be malignant, we have now some new um, uh, programs that are developed to assess for cell-based um, uh, uh, screening opportunities to, to determine which way that, that may be for that patient. Um, obviously, we're continuing to expand on the... Um, uh, 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 screening, uh, pure screening programs, which have always been challenged because of the relative rarity of this disease as, as incident cases, um, which is what drives that, um, that uh, problem. And, um, but, but, you know, fortunately we've not abandoned it. Um, and so even after the UK CTOX trial, you know, basically showed that they couldn't affect um, mortality uh, by, by screening technology, this has not stopped the, 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 the discovery component. So what I think you'll see in 2023 is the release of some new um, strategies to approach this that are, that are based not only on morphological changes, so things about the actual ovaries themselves, but also cell-based therapies, uh, cell, excuse me, cell-based um, screening um, opportunities for proteins and different cells that are identified in blood. So that's been, that I think that from that kind of the earliest component of it, in the in the newly diagnosed um, arena, you know, we've started to see the emergence of of of, uh, of uh, trials that are questioning the need for chemotherapy. And I know you're saying, "What? Yeah. What did he just say?" Yes. Yeah. So, um, so we know that um, our best, um, our highest likelihood for response to um, 
to uh, novel therapy, particularly PARP inhibitors, is in patients who have carry these BRCA mutations in their tumors. And um, we have some new adjuvant trials that are ongoing now that are taking chemotherapy out of the induction component. So diagnosis, then treatment, then surgery, and then treatment afterwards. And what we've seen in these, uh, and Shannon Weston, also you know, a, a frequent flyer here with Overcome, and my good, my good friend. And and um, initially, I, I love to say she was you know one of my mentees. So I take credit for all of her success. No, I, I'm just kidding. Um, but you know, she she and I talked about this many years ago about whether or not we could actually put uh, a PARP inhibitor therapy for patients whose tumors were de- were were diagnosed with a BRCA mutation. And, and see if we could uh, in, induce responses. That trial, um, which is um, called NOW, is, um, is getting ready to report. And, and I think that um, what we're seeing early on is that there is this high level of response in that patient population. So there may be an opportunity to start think about frontline treatment in a completely new way other than just chemo or chemo plus something followed by some maintenance thing. So that's, I think, a 2023 you know, we start seeing some direction about that. Of course, maintenance therapies, I just mentioned with the Athena trial um, reporting, we now have, um, you know, three other trials, a trial called FIRST, a trial called uh, DUOO, and a trial called OB43 or KeyLink. So that will be the fourth trial, Athena Combo, that will look at these various different combinations. These trials are set to report really relatively, probably in 23. Um, at least get our initial look at them. And they'll be looking at in patient populations that are not so highly selected. So not the, just the BRCA patients, mm-hmm. uh, the patients that, whose tumors are, carry a BRCA mutation, but those that carry either the homologous recombination deficiency signal or wild type. And uh, we'll be looking at the interaction between antiangiogenesis therapy, immunotherapy, and PARP inhibitor therapy. So that will be a 2023 event. And then what I hope to see, you know, we've spent so much time about recurrence, right? We talk about platinum sensitive recurrence as being kind of this, I don't know, uh, ghost town. We, like we don't have very many trials in that space, but we do now. So uh, 2023 will be uh, a time to ramp up our platinum sensitive uh, trials. We have two antibody drug conjugates, which we could talk about a little bit. Um, later um, about this uh, form of therapy that's being added in the um, in the maintenance and in the uh, in the treatment phase for platinum sensitive patients um, or patients with platinum sensitive disease, and then obviously a huge portfolio for platinum resistance. So lots of work happening in 2023. Yeah, and I was just thinking I was understating it when I said hope on the horizon. It seems like <laughs> so much is ongoing that's that's so promising thank you for sharing that with us can i go back to the chemotherapy because i'm completely i mean i'm so (laughs) interested in that that you said that we may be able to even drop chemotherapy and the reason why i'm going back to that is you know there are several overcomers that have shared with us that the toxicity and the side effects of chemotherapy has alone been a reason for them to drop treatment because mm-hmm. it's just something that they cannot tolerate through the process. So mm-hmm. if we were or were to drop this chemotherapy from the treatment or we were able to remove this for the patients who are responding negatively, mm-hmm. it would be completely life-changing and you know yeah. altering for that's amazing. Right. Right. And, and, you know, this is what we call de-escalation. So, you know, we've always, we've always been, you know, the drug development mantra has always been push until you get toxicity and then back off. Right. So to, you know, push to the limit and then, then, and then kind of step back and say, okay, this is what we're going to go for. So what we're trying to do with these uh, de-escalation strategies is to um, capitalize on a biomarker derived, um, response that we think would be that would rival chemotherapy and so while you know it's very difficult to do this in the frontline setting where we know we already have a proved mechanism that we know works uh to to displace that to try something new is scary and it requires a lot of education so what we've decided to focus on is this very tight relationship in in, um, you know, based in the lab, you know, discovered in 2005, that these cells are highly sensitive to PARP inhibitors um, and uh, that carry this mutation. If they're very, if they're addicted to this kind of process, then we might be able to affect the kind of responses that we'd hope to see with chemotherapy. So 
I don't know that I'd say, you know, probably going too far to say we can eliminate it, but we might be able to de-escalate some of that and help avert some of that toxicity that you just mentioned. That's wonderful. And I know I'm on question two of 25,000, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am going back to this one more time. What What is the... Yeah the role of AI in all this? I mean, because I what I'm reading and understanding is that, you know, AI is going to be front and center of medicine in the next five years. So where do you see it in 2020? So artificial intelligence? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, I think that, um, well, first of all, AI is, artificial intelligence is a very broad term. It covers many different things, right? Yeah. Yes. So what we, I think we have, I mean, you can even look at this from how does AI, for instance, inform how we read CAT scans. Mm -hmm. So again, is there a way, uh, a process by which data can be consumed in a way to provide, you know, um, some level of prioritization for a human to look at and, and make a decision on. And I think that um, as AI, uh, as, as different uh, methodologies that involve the um, uh, consumption of data from multiple sources uh, to provide some inference on what's going on in a, like uh, a tumor and with respect to biology, with response to response, with respect to um, efficacy, um, these types of things will, will start to um, enter into our, our space. And Probably the area where we're seeing most, I think, uh, success, at least now, it's easy, it's tangible, uh, is in the space of clinical trial matching. Mm. So um, so if you think about it, you, you know, you, if the patient goes to see a physician, you know, there's, there's intake forms, there's blood work, and there's imaging, um, and that gets put in the medical record. So then the question comes up was what's the most effective treatment for me based on what you just right. you just got from all from the physical exam and, and and everything like that. And of course, you know, we go down and say, well, these are the guidelines, right? Well, the guidelines are very broad. They're not very personalized. Even if we talk about, well, listen, I have a specific mutation, that's still very broad, right? So the idea here is to is to consume all of this information and start to understand the very complex interrelationships between different dynamics that make up those features. And then, so then and essentially not necessarily spit out an answer that you have X or you have Y, but to put out a priority. And then with, in a clinical trial matching scenario, we would then match that to a potential clinical trial that a patient could participate in. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. yeah. And, and this is where I was thinking in my head, AI is going to come in and say, based on the data that we have captured about, about a particular patient, that chemotherapy is not for you, you know, yeah. that would yeah. save that person so much toxicity and side effects and, mm -hmm. you know, all that, that everyone's facing these days, if the, those that are responding negatively to chemotherapy. So that's where I was in my head, I was thinking AI could yeah. value in that directly. Yeah. And you can look at this also in, in a couple of ways. And we've talked, I think we've talked about this before, but if you look at um, in, in ovarian cancer maintenance, again, how, how much maintenance therapy is appropriate? Right. Right. So right now, if you get, if you're on a laparib, it's two years, if you're on neurap, it's three years. And if it's in the recurrent setting, it's till yeah. it stops working. Right. So, but if you look carefully at the, at the curves, the, the survival curves in those publications, you start to realize that the patients that are on experimental treatment and the patients that are on no treatment, placebo, that their, their probability of recurring at, at either on either arm is the same at some point in time before you're supposed to stop treatment. Yeah. Okay. And so if that's the case, then essentially we're treating patients who aren't going to really benefit from longer treatment, right. some patients, right? right? And on the other way I look at this, is that we may be finding a time point where in the patient tumor mechanisms for resistance are being are being um, you know uh, uh, provided or being developed, and maybe before we wait for progression, we actually then use that information to change treatment or add to right. it yes. to make it more efficient. Exactly. And again, so those are the types of things that we could use to enhance therapy that would be much more patient specific than just kind of population-based science. Absolutely. 
So on to my question number three, finally. So, um, I wanted to know more about, you know, a lot has happened and we have been reading articles on PARP and limitations in the maintenance mm -hmm. or the um, second line and, uh, you know, how it has been restricted for majority of the drugs that are available in the market. So mm -hmm. um, tell us a little more about that. And also, especially for our overcomers that are already on PARP for a second line treatment. Um, how are the options evolving for them and what should they know about continuing or discontinuing PARP as a second line? Yeah, so this is the whole conversation in itself. I mean, I'll try to, I'll try to be brief. The, um, so basically, um, the, the, sto the story is that, um, that there were several trials that were done as a commitment for uh, approvals that were granted in, in 2017, 2018, um, uh, to, to see that, to confirm that these, that these drugs were actually providing benefit to patients. Mm -hmm. And these uh, three trials uh, that were run uh, basically all confirmed their primary endpoints that they were beneficial. Yeah. But what happened is that with longer follow-up, they started to look at variables such as overall survival and then went back and compared the patients who were on either one of these, you know, randomized arms with overall survivorship mm -hmm. um, in the, in that recurrent setting. And what they saw was that it looked like that the curves kind of reversed. So in other words, that the patients that were on treatment um, and then switched over to being on to a standard care treatment versus the patients that were on standard care treatment, that, that, that their overall survival estimates were not as, were, were lower if you looked at certain data points. Mm -hmm. Now, this caused the FDA to say, well, maybe there's something that's happening by using PARP in this particular setting. And these were in patients who carried a BRCA mutation, right? Multiple lines of prior treatment, carried a BRCA mutation, PARP naive. So, um, the agency felt that their need, they needed to issue a cautionary note to, um, to patients and providers, and in doing so, wanted the ask the companies to voluntarily restrict or retract their indications for treatment, not maintenance, for treatment. Yeah. So that started this. Now, many of us um, disagreed not only with the methodology, but also the conclusions based on that. And there's lots of reasons for that, which we can get into, but, but we disagreed with that. Nevertheless, the agency continued their, their, their prowl on this, um, on this uh, methodology and they applied it to the primary maintenance, or excuse me, the secondary maintenance settings, so the platinum sensitive patients on part. And what they showed or what they stated was that they saw similar trends in patients, um, with the exception of the patients whose tumors carried a BRCA mutation for Rucaparib and Olaparib and for germline only in Niraparib and asked the companies again to retract their labels. So, so far, GSK has been, the company GSK has retracted their maintenance um, indication for the non-germline BRCA patient cohort. Yeah. Um, the others have been requested, but we haven't seen them actually do it yet. Um, and again, the, 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 the problem with this is that they're basing these decisions on endpoints that are many years from when the randomization actually happened mm -hmm. and have not been able to take into account the um, imbalances in therapy that happens after progression. And right. so that has made overall survival a very difficult and very dirty kind of or non-specific endpoint, um, and in so in so much so that recently the European agency review re-reviewed the data that the FDA had already opined on, and the word is although we haven't seen the official documents, but the word is is that they didn't agree uh, with with the restrictions that were placed on uh, under the same data evaluation for the U.S. So we'll see how that all plays out, but ultimately. For me, um, patients that are that are you know in the frontline setting, the PARP inhibitors, are, I think, only were reinforced by the re recent crop of data showing OS benefit in um, uh, in, in with um, Alaparib and with uh, Pala One. Both of those studies were reported last year. I should add that to my 2002 wins. There were a number of them, but those were those were kind of expected um, that we saw these overall survival advantages. 
Um, so I think in the frontline setting, that's fairly solid. I mm-hmm. think in the HR proficient uh, tumors, uh, it's still unknown exactly what the best strategy is. And so we're still working through that. However, for patients who have recurrent disease and are on a PARP inhibitor for maintenance, right now, in my opinion, there's no, as long as they're tolerating the treatment well and are, are seeing benefit, we should take advantage of that. The primary endpoint to the patient is the time to the next progression for those patients. And every trial that has been done in all cohorts have demonstrated that that's beneficial. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, change course uh, uh, in that, from that standpoint for patients that are, that have made it all the way through treatment, one treatment two, and have a BRCA mutation and have not seen a PARP inhibitor, uh, right now it would, you can't, it, you can't in the United States, at least you can't administer a PARP inhibitor in that set, in that setting. So it's no longer available therapy. Okay. Um, even if the trials have demonstrated benefit, um, to, uh, for objective response for those patients. So what I heard you say is for the patients that are already on PARP for the second line treatment, mm-hmm. uh, according to you, uh, you see no immediate need to withdraw these patients. No, despite no, the FDA indications. Okay. No, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. And do the patients have? I mean, I mean, I know you cannot answer this question completely, but. Do they have complete awareness of the fact of what's happening? Do they have a decision making, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think they should. I think they should come to their people that are on maintenance um, PARP inhibitors right now, with platinum sensitive recurrent disease, uh, should talk to their physicians about what the current regulations are with respect to the drug that they're on. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, they're different between the three drugs, um, uh, even though they functionally act the same. Um, the indications specifically are, I think many of us, myself included here, are looking at the duration of treatment as a potential. Yeah. So I've had patients that have been on apartment uh, for many years. Um, and, and the question is, is, is there benefit after a certain point in time? We know that the longer these patients um, are on treatment, particularly in recurrent setting, that there is a potential risk for secondary malignancy. We talked about that before the AML. MDS um, issue, um, which can be particularly hard to treat if it occurs in the post-PARP setting. So I think many of us are looking at duration of treatment critically. Um, and so if a patient had been on for two years, let's say, and wants to know whether or not they should continue, I think that's a really good discussion to have with their physician. Um, I've, I have been more uh, providing more um, guidance to be careful on duration of treatment uh, in the recurrent setting. Um, we don't have any specific data to support that other than we know that uh, that there are long-term risks that are higher in the, particularly in the BRCA, BRCA um, mutated tumors um, uh, 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 within the recurrent setting. So, um, uh, it, and I know that many of uh, my colleagues now are also kind of reevaluating duration of treatment. Okay, thank you. So, um... You, you briefly touched upon this, but can you tell us about the new drugs that are on the pipeline or have recently been approved for ovarian cancer and especially for our platinum sensitive friends, because, you know, that's the majority of the population and there wasn't too many options up until today. Uh, so tell us a little more about right. what we are about to see in this space. Right. So I think the probably the, the, the biggest um, agents well, first of all, I should mention that for platinum-sensitive patients um, who have not received a PARP inhibitor, that's still an option in certain situations. But for many, you know, bevacizumab is still a very good, well-proved, well-proved drug to that's available for our patients in the platinum-sensitive space. Um, the chemotherapy backbones are still platinum-based. Um, the partners for those platinums are ones that are kind of in the future could be changed. And, and, and the drugs that are being used um, substitute for paclitaxel predominantly are ones that fall into this class of drug we call the antibody drug conjugates. Mm-hmm. And so mervituximab, as I mentioned before, became approved for platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, but it's being studied right now in platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer as a maintenance strategy, uh, as well as another ADC um, called uh, upafitimab. Uh, which is um, um, uh, focused on uh, the expression of NAPI2B, which is a specific um, 
uh, target on ovarian cancer cells also being looked at in the platinum sensitive setting as a maintenance maintenance strategy. So, um, so I think that those uh, are are the kind of the near term new agents going into the platinum sensitive space uh, right now, uh, while we work out the details of how we're going to move PARP into that into that arena. Um, the um, uh, and again, you know, there's a constant uh, number of, of 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 treatments that are you know kind of trying to position themselves in the platinum sensitive space. But one of the reasons we struggle with clinical trials is that the expectation for outcomes are pretty good, yeah. right? With the existing therapy. So if you look at, you know, for instance, Paclitaxel carbol bevacizumab or liposomal doxorubicin, um, uh, carboplatinum and bev, uh, we have pretty good outcomes for response, uh, progression-free survival and overall survival expectations. So to launch a trial that will take several years to report and be big is, is just been a challenge for us. And, um, um, uh, but we do have, like I said, we do have some that are on the way. That's great. Um, just, uh, just flipping it to the other side, uh, uh, you know, we have again, talked to a few of our overcomers who are platinum resistant and they go through multiple lines of therapies and nothing seems to work in the end. So there is always that question that comes up that when do you make the determination to stop any kind of further treatment. And I know we, you and I have talked a lot about AI and I can again see um, the, the effectiveness of AI into determining something like this based on the, you know, the data for that particular patient or overcomer. But in general now, um, how do you make that determination to, I know it's a yeah. one, but how do you do that? Yeah, and it's a shared decision for sure. And you know, it's like, I just went through this uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, um, it's um, yeah. So so part of this is just about you know base is baseline education with respect to the natural history of the disease. Mm -hmm. So I think that some of the difficulty in 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 stopping treatment is not having appropriate expectation of what is you know is available and what can be actually impacting a patient. So for mm -hmm. me and for any of my patients that are out there, they know that this is a discussion that you know starts early on just as part of the education process. Mm -hmm. And I always tell them that when we come to a point in time when we have to make a decision to change or not change, um, or when you know, we have to make a decision to change or not, we need to balance what the expectation of outcome is versus what is, you know, what would be the natural history without any treatment. Yeah. And I think many people feel that no treatment means like that's it. They just they just fall off the cliff, and that's not the case. In fact, most of the times, I would say many, maybe even most of the time, when we stop treatment, patients actually do pretty well yeah. for for an extended period of time. But we what we don't want and what we want to avoid, and I hear this all the time, and it's really hard, and I I know it's so difficult, and sensitive. But when people say, "Listen, I don't care what happens to me. I just give me something." Yeah. You know, I, you know, what do I have to lose? Well, you have a lot to lose, including autonomy and actually uh, the ability to interact with family. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, you know, you sh I don't feel like everybody needs to, to, you know, to end their lives with drugs still in their blood. I, I just think that's, a, that's just wrong. Um, and it does strip away some of the opportunities that um, patients could enjoy by being off a of treatment, including being with loved ones. So I, I have that conversation all the time so that when the time actually does come, it's not foreign to them or the family. You know, the other thing that we talk about frequently is that many patients feel um, it's that they're expected to continue to push for therapy um, when it's not recommended because their family thinks that's the, the expectation. And so part of this, as I mentioned, is educating the family as well. Um, and so some of my most difficult conversations have been when there's an imbalance between that expectation and knowledge within the family, uh, particularly in somebody, for, for instance, who may come have, have arrived late in the treatment course, you know, a distant relative or something. And they're like, you know, I heard somebody took, you know, this potion and it made and then their disease all went away. And, you know, why aren't you doing that? You know, and and, um, and so those are really tricky and difficult decisions. Um to have, but I hope that with the evolving relationship that we all have with our patients and the education that goes into every step along the way, that these decisions, although they're still hard, 
you know, will be, um, well, they'll, they'll under, it'll be in the framework of what is the expectation for the overall, um, you know, disease, uh, natural history. And thank you for sharing this so beautifully with us, uh, Dr. Coleman. So, um, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but there, there's the new trial called Accelerate with yeah. an AX. Okay. So oh, tell us a little more about this trial and what is the expected outcome and how can our patients learn more about it and other available trials, for example, and sign up for them? Well, yeah. It's, so the last part of that question is, is really important. How do you, is, is ask. So, um, you know, we know that one of the greatest barriers uh, to uh, patient engagement with research is that nobody ever asks. <laughs> so nobody says, you know, am I eligible for a trial? Or we do even worse on our side. We never ask a patient that we know is eligible if they want to participate in a trial. That's our biggest goal hurdle to get over. So Accelerate is a, um, this is a uh, decoy um, receptor. Uh, it's not dissimilar from Oh, a drug that we used to we that we evaluated before called um, uh, a flibercept, which was a decoy receptor for VEGF. This is the decoy receptor for Axel, um, which is a um, which is a, a unique ligand um, uh, 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 that that uh, has a number of cellular processes, and this has been it developed it not 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 so much as an active agent on its own, but um, but is a uh, one that we saw that had nice synergy with chemotherapy, particularly with paclitaxel. And so this particular trial, which is uh, now closed, um, is looking at this uh, this combination versus um, paclitaxel. And you know, again, we, it's like a number of trials uh, that we've done or ongoing, um, looking at combination what we call plus one designs that are essentially looking at um, chemotherapy. Um, uh, plus a novel agent and uh, seeing if we can Im improve upon the expectation for chemotherapy alone. So we'll see. I mean, the trial is, uh, was very nicely designed. Um, we've been involved in that uh, development program from the preclinical stage forward. So it's been nice to see it work its way through. Um, and, you know, again, we will, we will hear about this uh, particular uh, trial, hopefully, you know, uh, later this year. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, hopefully this will be, you know, something we could add to our inventarian. And just to clarify, this is in the platinum resistance space, right? Mm -hmm. This one mm -hmm. also? Yes. Okay. So, uh, you know, you, you brought up some interesting points on the clinical trials. I'll share our perspective that we get from our overcomers, right? So majority, as we know, of our patients and overcomers are being treated at community hospitals or not mm -hmm. in big academic centers, like Anderson or Dana-Farber. Mm -hmm. So in many, several cases, or actually majority of the cases, um, they are not being talked about by their providers about clinical trials. What is available mm -hmm. to these patients and what they could do is they don't, they are not aware of the mm -hmm. things that they could be signing up for. Then there's this whole thing about, you know, even though a trial is recruiting, there are like 10 spots for a thousand people that are interested. So I know this is the other side of the story, but we do get this feedback repeatedly from our, from our overcomers. Mm -hmm. Why I'm, you know, kind of sharing this with you is um, not only there is lack of knowledge uh, that's given to the overcomers. And also you have to realize that, you know, when a patient is in the community setting, more often than not, that person is more reliant or heavily dependent on their physician versus mm -hmm. the others who are probably Googling and searching on their own, right? So mm -hmm. um, so there is that. And then there's also the fact that the recruitment is low for the clinical trials that are you know, of interest or, or to mm -hmm. our overcomers. Then there is this site issue that they are far away from where the clinical trials are. And so you know, from a eligibility, recruitment, lack of knowledge, and the 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 proximity, the list goes on. And there are many hindrances and barriers, as you have mentioned. So what, in your opinion, could or should change in 2023 so that we can make clinical trials more available for our overcomers that are actually interested in signing up? Yeah, what yeah, that's an important question. So, and and I um, it, it's great to have this opportunity to to spread the the word on this. 
So as you mentioned, you know, I'm, I, I served as a chief scientific officer for U.S. oncology research. Um, and now I serve as the chief medical officer for Sarah Cannon Research Institute, which is basically now an amalgamation of both U.S. US oncology research and Sarah Cannon Research Institute into one new research organization. So the, um, the, I got interested in wanting to do that uh, specific um, position um, because the U.S. Oncology Network and now the Sarah Cannon Network are huge, mm-hmm. huge. Like 20% of the population with cancer in the United States is treated in one of those sites. Mm-hmm. One in five. So that kind of footprint addresses this question, this major question you asked about access. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that access in clinical trials, even at the university centers, is much lower than it could be because of the same reasons. We also find that you know, um, at, uh, activity at major medical centers that are also limited by many of the things you just mentioned, travel, um, you know, the need to stay overnight, um, uh, you know, just parking. You know, those are all things. So one of the things that excited me about wanting to take the, the, uh, the job that I have now was that it, it allowed me to work on new mechanisms that could bring research to a broader uh, audience. And, and one of those limitations is one of the things you just mentioned, which is that there are too few slots available yeah. for the one in five patients that are seen in these community centers. So um so what we dis- what I've been working on are a couple of different models. One is one is a, a program that's focused on biomarker identification. So if a patient has a specific mutation or a specific finding um, uh, amplification or a specific protein expression level on a on a specific um, gene in their in their sequencing um, uh, assessment, that we would be able to pull that out of the medical record and identify a trial that was aligned with that. And because of this, this mechanism, we then can rapidly, uh, within a two-week time frame, bring the site online as a, as a infusion site. Mm. So rather than having to open the trial up to 600 sites trying to find these patients, we would open it up to five sites. But when a site in one of those 600 that actually identifies a patient, we would activate the site. And we can do that within a two-week window. The other um, strategy that uh, we are um, uh, we are piloting in a in a pancreatic tumor model is is a is what we call a comet, and what this comet model is stands for community oncology maximizing enrollment together C O M E T, and what and so what this what this trial does is it moves it takes it allows us to open up a broad number of sites, but then have them funnel under a single site. So that if a, if a company says that we want to open up 100 global sites, only one site of that 100 would come from this model. And, yeah. But underneath that one site, may, we may have 25, 30, 40 sites mm-hmm. underneath it. So we worked out a mechanism to provide the uh, regulatory assurance and safety quality that we could actually execute that trial. And that's what's ongoing right now. So that allows us to be much broader across the United States to get not only more patients, the opportunity to participate, but also a broader opportunity for diverse patients to participate. Mm -hmm. Because now I can open up from sites from Florida to Seattle. Exactly. And, uh, and so that's, those are just some of the strategies and I'm working on more uh, as we go on every day to help overcome these barriers, one of which is to get in front of pharma and say, listen, you know, you, you want, you want to use the entire U.S. oncology, uh, Sarah Cannon network to enroll 10 patients. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, that, that can be enrolled in a single practice. So, yeah. so what we try to do is say, listen, give us a hundred patients and we'll, uh, and we'll, and we'll deliver. And that allows us again to expand um, and so ultimately, as sites become better at enrolling patients on studies, they get more studies. It's kind of a very That's much a, a, a feed forward opportunity. And so we're, um, we're, we're working on that very hard. And we'll stay tuned on that because this is of, you know, personal interest to, to me to see that, mm-hmm. that more of our overcomers get that opportunity because, you know, we always hear that there isn't enough interest, but we also see firsthand that there is sufficient interest, but there aren't spots available for, yeah. 
for overcomers that want to sign up, you know? So Yeah. And one quick post note, postscript to this is that, you know, you mentioned that, well, and this is very frustrating for, I know for many of my patients as well, is they say, well, I never qualify because yeah. of this and that and this and that. So yeah. the government, the FDA has recently put out some guidance on um, a way to make more pragmatic trials available. And their mm -hmm. first trial is a lung cancer study called Pragmatica Lung. And it's, it's using um, uh, a different, um, less restrictions, more flexibility, right. less um, onerous testing yeah. to make these trials easier for people to participate in and have an opportunity to not be as excluded as, as, as we've seen in previous work. So again, more to come on that as, uh, as we move forward. That sounds very, very positive. Again, I mean, 2023 seems to be opening in exactly the right direction. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I know we are uh, coming on time, but so let me switch gears a little bit and ask you this, this fun question that if you, if you were an overcomer for a day, um, mm -hmm. just switching roles, uh, what questions would you ask your doctor as a recently diagnosed patient or someone in treatment or in remission or in recurrence? Yeah, that's great. I'd love to be on that, on that, on, uh, to be able to address it from that side. I, you know, you, you know me, I'm, I'm all about clinical trials. So the first question, if I was newly diagnosed, would be, you know, first we to lay out the, you know, what, what the strategy is. And then also, is there an opportunity for participating in a clinical trial and go through, you know, why a clinical trial is necessary? Right. I think that's important to understand and what it would entail uh, for the altering, trying to alter the natural history. So I think that um, a question that doesn't get asked very frequently is, you know, should I have genomic profiling of my tumor? Mm -hmm. And as time moves forward, the 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 comprehensive nature of 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 tumor assessment is going to get much more prevalent and much more available to patients. So it's not just about HRD, for instance, as a newly diagnosed patient or BRCA mutation, it's about all the other things. Mm -hmm. So um, I would I would be wanting to know, you know, when can my tumor get treated? What's the natural history of this disease? What are my, what's the treatment strategy? And is there a, um, a clinical trial I can participate in? Wonderful. So, um... This is, uh, this is, I know there is no definitive answer, but I'm going to ask anyway, uh, is there a way to prevent ovarian cancer recurrence? Recurrence? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it, recurrence is all about, um, you know, factors that we poor, understand very poorly. Um, uh, right now, our greatest strategy to prevent recurrence is maintenance treatment. Um, it doesn't work in everybody, but that is our best strategy to the to the uh, to the to the moment um in addition you know what patients can do and this is you know gets to the to the to you know other factors like how patients can be involved in their own treatment care is uh staying active you know yeah. anil asud also another uh, board member a close friend of mine and uh colleague a research colleague you know uh we did work many years ago about the impact of stress and on cancer biology, we've talked about this many times here. Um, we were able to show that um, the stress not only accelerates cancer growth, but the reduction of stress can actually reduce that growth and that growth opportunity. So I try to tell people when they get through um, treatment or while they're on, for instance, their maintenance phase to try to stay active. Exercise is a fantastic way to do that, but it's not the only thing, right? Um, I, I like meditation. I like prayer. I like um, anything that gets people into that happy place where they can start to distance themselves from the disease uh, course, because people that are uh, that are constantly worrying about recurrence tend to get that happen because mm -hmm. it's it, it, re it increases their stress hormones, which can have adverse events on re on the recruitment of cells that are essentially dormant. So um so that's something that that uh, at the personal level patients can do. But um, you know, as I mentioned, the, the the science involved about what causes recurrence um, is is still emerging, and we've learned that uh, there are various different factors that put cells into this this uh, uh, what we call diapause state where they just don't they are just offline, but for whatever reason they can get recruited back online, and um, and so. 
um, uh, work uh, that we're doing is is um, is trying to um, you know is trying to figure out what that story is. Okay. So um, so on that note, what would the future of ovarian cancer look like in fifty years? You think? In fifty, well, I hope that it's prevented. I hope we figure out a way to prevent it because ultimately, once it's diagnosed, then it becomes genetic chaos, right? So it'd be nice to just figure out that we found a way to, to prevent it and that it's something easy and can be accessible to everybody. That's, that's my goal. Um, you know, um, 50 years is a long time. Think about what's happened since. And since, that's uh, why I asked. So. Yeah, if you think about, you think about where we were in 1970, uh, you know, before tax all, you know, actually before platinum, um, lots of things have changed in that time period but you know we didn't get rid of the disease in 50 years right so so that would still be my my long-term goal would be that we would be able to do something early on uh in in when people were healthy that would completely obliviate the um the risk for um for the development of this disease um so uh, when, essentially when you and i come back as birds or dogs in our next life, there will be no ovarian <laughs> cancer anymore. There you go. There Let's you go. Pay for that, right? <laughs> and so um, then if you could be remembered for one thing as a doctor, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Um, I I would hope that I um, helped. I hope that I would be remembered for helping move the field forward. I, I feel like, I feel like that's been my, um, my calling and um and 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 I try to message this to my teams as well is that you know I, I I want I want their work to make a difference, and um, it, there's lots of different ways to contribute. But I would have hoped that um, that this work through education, um, through um, you know clinical research, uh, through advocacy, you know somehow made a difference to somebody somewhere, um, yeah. and that that would be then I knew I I'd gotten there. That's wonderful. And so my final question, Dr. Goldman, as we finish is, as always, that's my most favorite question to ask, um, is as we open 2023, what message of overcoming would you have for our listeners that are listening today? So my message always is, you know, is just be hopeful um, and um, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, there uh, it is always difficult to 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 walk this journey but there is an army of people that want to walk it with you mm -hmm. um and and the resources are there and we want to and we want to help so so um so be hopeful don't be afraid to ask for help um and learn as much as you can about this disease um look for clinical trials and um uh and just know that you have a lot of overcomers out there who want to help you make it through the day Wonderful. Such a beautiful conversation, <laughs> Dr. Coleman. Thank you for sharing all your insights with us as always. It is always, always so fun to talk to you <laughs> and to learn about all the great signs that's happening. So thank you for your time. And Overcomers, hope this was beneficial for you. I know, as always, I always learn so much from Dr. Uh, Dr. Coleman. So um, please share this video far and wide once again to anyone who may benefit from all this information that you shared with us today. We will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.